Good Tuesday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be back on the air, but then again, it's always been great to be back on. Well, um, here we are on a Tuesday evening discussing, once again, Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Last night's discussion, we talked a lot about uh, Lake Superior and all and the unique history that surrounds the lake, whether it's from geological history, uh, whether it was to um, Indians, the first Indians settling, to the first Europeans exploring, and how Superior itself got its name from uh, the presence of uh, British forces in what was known then uh, colonial America. But of course, to, to us, it was North America. But as for tonight's podcast, we're going to be discussing... Um, some additional uh, general, what I call 101 information about the Edmund Fitzgerald. We're also going to be discussing um, some more about um, the um, taconite pellets that the uh, Fitzgerald uh, shipped um, on numerous um, voyages, if not numerous, all of her voyages that she made um, during her 17-year span, being that of uh, taconite pellets. But how taconite pellets them itself, or themselves, I should say, uh, were brought about. In other words, how were they um, introduced as this um, very special commodity that uh, benefited the steel industry. And lastly, we're going to also learn about why the Edmund Fitzgerald got her nickname, the Toledo Express, and the number of uh, captains who actually uh, commanded the ship during a set, this, her 17-year reign. So, uh, let's start off with what I call the lead-off bonus question. Given that the Edmund Fitzgerald was 729 feet long, it would become, at the time of her launching, the largest ship to sail the Great Lakes. How or what could she be the equivalent of? The Fitzgerald herself was more than two football fields in length and, and three highway lanes in width. I find interesting the football fields, given that she was more than two football fields in length. Uh, look at the Titanic. The Titanic herself was two and a half football fields long. Of course, she was 882 feet long, so she, um, of course, she was around well before the Edmund Fitzgerald came along, but the Titanic herself was about 153 feet longer than the Fitzgerald. But nonetheless, for the Fitzgerald herself to be more than two football fields in length is very impressive, to say the least. She had a hold that could carry more than 25,000 tons of cargo. That, to me, is astonishing. And when you have a ship that can carry more than 25,000 tons of cargo, to everybody out there, they've come to see this ship as larger than life itself. Maybe in some ways the Titanic could have had that same um, interpretation. Of course, the Titanic was a luxury line ship, not a cargo ship, whereas the Fitzgerald was. But there again, I think it's fair to say that given that the, both ships lived in um, in different times that they were both uh, seen as larger than life itself 
considering that both of them were considered unsinkable also. Well, what does the term hold itself refer to? The answer to the, that question is this. Hold has to refer to, it refers to the large area of a ship where cargo is stored. So where do you think that large area of the ship for the Edmund Fitzgerald would be? The answer is in the center. We're not just talking one small section. We're talking about a huge, huge section of the middle. Given that if this ship can hold more than 25,000 tons of cargo, uh, it's got to have enough space for the cargo itself to be to be um, loaded in not just one component, but in multiple components. Now, in another uh, podcast session down the road, I am going to talk more about how the uh, cargo itself would get loaded on the Fitzgerald because that was a process that was very unique, challenging, and if not done properly, dangerous. So let's just put this in a nutshell right here. You know, it's one thing to pack your suitcase. It's another thing to uh, pack the car for a trip. But when you're loading cargo onto a ship that's 729 feet long and has a cargo hold, or should I say a hold that can carry more than 25,000 tons of cargo, you better um, be very, very careful with loading the ship this size because if you, too, if you put too much cargo in one of the, um, uh, what do you call it, bulkhead compartments, it can cause a ship to um, sail unevenly to where um, if the ship itself is taking on too much uh, water, or should I say ballast, it can make a ship very uneven to where it might just... Um, it might just either cave out or, or cave in, I should say, or it could um, snap in two pieces if the, con- if the ingredients, or should I say the conditions, are right for that. Now, I can mention more of that in another podcast, but the bottom line is, is that um, loading cargo onto a ship is not the same thing like packing your suitcase or packing a car for a trip. So let's definitely remember that, regardless of how big or small a cargo ship is, or a freighter, rather. Now, given the Edmund Fitzgerald was an iron ore freighter, what commodity, or should I say natural resource, did she become well-known for transporting? (laughs) I've already mentioned it a few times, but I'll just say it again. Taconite pellets. Now, I didn't know anything about taconite pellets until I read this book. So I've been uh, doing some research on taconite pellets and understanding why um, this was an essential uh, natural resource or uh, not just to be shipping on the Great Lakes but to be transporting to um, facilities on the mainland in the Midwest, most notably steel plant facilities. So before we answer that part, here's something we've got to find out. Is taconite itself a tough or should I say a resilient form of rock? The answer is yes. Taconite contains 30% of which two elements, or should I say substances? Taconite contains 30% hematite and magnetite. 
those two elements are the principal ores of iron. That I did not know until having read this book. During the first half of the 20th century, high levels being main ores of iron became discarded by the mining industry. And because of all this discard because of all this discarding, it led to an, an unexpected increase in demand for iron by the time World War II comes around. So it's one thing to um, discard uh, an ores of iron, but once you discard that, it, it's safe to say that you're almost wasting um, a pressure or, or wasting a commodity. So um, the demand for steel skyrockets throughout the 1950s. And how so? Well, the baby boomer generation starts uh, to evolve after World War II comes to an end. Automobile production resumes, and it just doesn't resume 101. It um, takes off even more. And then there are new demands for building materials. Well, after World War II, families start moving into what we now know suburbia. While, yes, families live in the city, but moving into what's called the suburbs takes on an even greater meaning. How do we uh, resolve this problem to help uh, modify the demand for steel? Well, which collegiate institution comes up with the, this new strategy or method for se in separating iron ore from taconite? The answer is a fellow by the name of Dr. E.W. Davis from the University of Minnesota. What is the name of the process for which iron ore itself gets separated from taconite? It's a, a process known as beneficiation. It's a process that's not simple nor cheap. All right, well, I think we need to know what is the first step in mining taconite. The first step in this process involves drilling into the rock itself and using explosives to blast it into pieces that could be hauled by rail, that is by rail car or large trucks where the pieces themselves got sent to processing plants. And we're not talking when you get drilled into the rock, I don't think we're talking about the basic power drill uh, that would be used for inside and outside um, home uh, purposes. Probably these kinds of uh, drills were much bigger than the standard power drill. Now at the processing plants, taconite was grounded into a powder, whereas iron ore became separated from the rest of the rock. Now, after the separation of iron ore, taconite powder substance would then become moistened to getting combined with clay, limestone, and bentonite, or bentonite. Once all this combination um, process takes place, then the taconite itself becomes rolled into marble-sized balls between 3 eighths and 5 eighths inches in diameter 
that would get fired at temperatures of 2200 to 2400 degrees Fahrenheit. That, to me, is blazing hot. So is it safe to say that, think about it, these taconite, um, the taconite powder substance is being rolled into marble-sized balls. So it's fair to say that, um, that these are not gigantic-sized things. Marble, you know, marble is a small thing or a small, um, a small ball. Uh, think of like, you know, marbles that we, you know, marbles and jacks and, uh, or just on a standard uh, marble board game. So the Edmund Fitzgerald is transporting pellets to ports located near steel-producing cities, especially in the heart of the um, industrial belt, most notably like Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, to other parts of Michigan. I would say I think it's fair to say that uh, the cities that are benefiting the most from this are like Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, maybe even Northwest Indiana, which is home to Gary, Indiana, um, maybe even South Bend, Indiana, might be benefiting from a steel industry. So the bottom line is the Midwest is really uh, reaping is going to be reaping the benefits of having taconite pellets be um, sent to them. Not just sent to them, but to be able to melt down the pellets to convert it into steel. Now, on September 22, 1958, this is an important date for the Fitzgerald for various reasons. Number one, the Fitzgerald set, sets out on its first Great Lake voyage, where it departs from Rogue River, Michigan, where she was built, bound for Silver Bay, Minnesota. The ship was to pick up a load of taconite pellets that, where the final destination would be uh, to Toledo, Ohio. Now, it turns out that um, the load to Toledo, being the Fitzgerald's first, would set a tonnage record when the ship passed through the Sioux Locks around the Upper Peninsula of Michigan a few days later. So it's very safe to say that even on its first voyage, first Great Lake voyage, the Edmund Fitzgerald was already setting records. Well, think about it. If you're the largest ship on the Great Lakes, you're not just being built just to say, hey, we built the largest ship. We have built the largest ship to say, hey, we need ships that are big enough that can transport vast quantities of cargo, not just of all kinds of cargo, but of a specific type of cargo. So think about it. The ship is over 20, has a cargo, a hold that can carry more than 25,000 tons of cargo. You want to make sure that you are using every inch of that hold as thoroughly as possible so that nothing goes to waste. If you don't use all of that hold in terms of, of, in terms of placing cargo in it, how is the Fitzgerald going to even expect to break records? And this isn't all for gratification or, or let alone glorification. The Fitzgerald is doing what Ogilvy Norton wants it to do. And that is, you know, Ogilvy Norton wants to make profit, but in order to make a good profit, the whole ship itself has to be used. That is the whole entire hold of the ship. If, if not, then the, 
then the profits that you're expecting will not um, will not um, bear the fruits of the labor. Well, why was the Fitzgerald so often referred to as the Toledo Express? There, here's the answer. Toledo, Ohio was one of the Fitzgerald's primary ports and many of her crew members hailed from that city. If any of you know, want to know where Toledo is, it's in the northwestern part of, of Ohio. It's surrounded um, by Lake Erie, and the westernmost part of Lake Erie surrounds Toledo, Ohio. Toledo's um, one of the rivers that um, flows into Lake Erie is the Maumee River. Toledo is not far from uh, Sandusky. Um, Toledo is also surrounded um, not just by Lake Erie, but there are islands outside of Lake Erie known. Um, there's uh, Putin Bay, there's Marblehead, uh, Genoa. Uh, as a matter of fact, from, my pre from a, the last book I did in Season 3 about Through the Perilous Fight, the six weeks that saved the nation, there was the Battle of Lake Erie from the War of 1812. So Lake Erie is a very, very vital hub um, for, for several reasons, for uh, commerce purposes. As a matter of fact, north of Toledo is Detroit, Michigan, which is not far at all. And Detroit, um, Lake Erie does uh, border into Detroit. And um, so Detroit and Toledo have a lot in uh, common in terms of uh, using uh, Lake Erie. So anyways, uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald obviously made many... Um, arrivals and departures out of um, Toledo or the port of Toledo and that's why she was given the Toledo Express because she was such a frequent visitor. And it turns out that six out of the 29 men on the Edmund Fitzgerald hailed from Toledo, Ohio, especially on the night that she went out of sight on November 10th of 1975. Besides Ohio, what other states did crew members hail from who were a part of the Fitzgerald's last voyage? There were men who came from Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and I was blown away at the last two. There was one felt, one or two men from Florida, and then there was a man from California. Well, I think it's safe to say that... Um, that when you're a part of a ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald, you can come from just about anywhere as long as you have a good resume on your record of service, not just for one ship, but from other ships and the duties that you have um, fulfilled. And I will say this on multiple occasions, not just tonight, but in other podcasts down the road, being on the Edmund Fitzgerald was every man's dream not just from a captain's uh, perspective, but whether uh, you were a, a 101 crewmate, uh, whether you were a deck handler, a cook, the bottom line is to be on the Edmund Fitzgerald, not just because she is the largest of the, of the Great Lake freighter ships in her day, but this ship, you know, it was the Titanic of the Great Lakes. If you're a part of this ship, then you, um, you have a true uh, special connection. This is uh, this part now is something that I really thought was um, that had to be told. How many 
head shipmasters did the Edmund Fitzgerald have during her 17-year existence from uh, September of 1958, which was um, the time that she first um, went, went on her um, first expedition, that is September 22nd of 1958, up until November 10th of 1975. Uh, how many uh, head shipmasters did she have during the 17-year uh, existence? Believe it or not, the answer is four. So, if you do 17 divided into 4, your answer is about 4.25 or roughly about 5, meaning on average 5 years per, uh, per the captain's uh, tenure on the ship. What are the names of these four men? Bert Lambert, Joe Larson, Peter Pulser, to Ernest McSorley. I did a little research on all four of these men. After all, it's one thing to talk about the ship, but I think it's important to talk about the men who were captains of this ship, how much they revered being on this ship, and how much they um, were revered by the crew who served under them. You know, it's one thing to be captain of a ship, but if you don't take pride of your, in your ship, you don't take interest in those who work below you, then how can you be considered an effective leader? All right, well, the, the man who became the first captain of the ship was Bert Lambert, and he just didn't uh, become captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald overnight. He had served on the Great Lakes for 41 years. He took over for the Fitzgerald in 1958, and retired after the 1958 shipping season. So I know one is thinking, gosh, you know, he didn't have a very long tenure. Well, when he did retire, I think it's fair to say that he helped set the standards for future Fitzgerald Masters. You know, when you look at his career 41 years, he had to obviously start out doing all the 101 roles because being a captain isn't something that's just handed to you overnight. You have to work your way up the ladder, and it means serving on multiple ships. Well, that's what Mr. Lambert did. I think it's fair to say that he probably started in the Great Lakes um, shipping, um, or should I say the freighter business, probably sometime just before or right after World War I ended. And I've, what I also found interesting about Mr. Lambert was that crewmen often referred to him as an in-charge fella, and nobody questioned his decisions. It's one thing to maybe have a, um, a difference in opinion with a captain, but you also better be careful about how you... Um, how do you go about it? Saying this, it's, it, you have to be very careful about how you express your opposition because if you challenge a captain's authority and you don't have your facts straight or if you don't word something rightly the captain himself will not only frown upon you but he could have you be dismissed from the ship and someone else will be in line to take your place in a heartbeat so captains have a very vital role. It's not just the well-being of their crew, but it's also the well-being of the ship itself, but also their image as a whole. 
because if they don't take their job seriously, then how are they going to have the respect of those below them? And how are they going to have respect of a company like Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company or let alone Ogilvy Norton? Think about it. It's, it's a double-edged sword, but it's a good double-edged sword for the right reasons. You've got Everybody's going to have to have trust in one another, regardless of the rank that you're on a ship, but also with ranks outside of the ship, and that is with the companies that own the boat, or the boats for that matter. The second person, um, being the second captain who took over for Mr. Burt Lambert, was Joe Larson. Mr. Larson led the ship through an impressive run of record-breaking shipping seasons. There were several tonnage records for single loads and seasonal totals to trips taken. And in 1964, there were 45 trips that took place that which the Edmund Fitzgerald was involved in. 45 the Fitzgerald carried, I was blown away at this, 1,160,952 tons of cargo through the Sioux locks. You know, I probably should have done the math in my head. Um, that is 1,160,952 divided into 45 being the number of trips. What I can say is that that number um, would be very staggering as well. It's almost as if no matter what the Fitzgerald does, she always seems to have a knack for, um, for striking at gold. But then again, when you have a cargo, when you have a hold that can carry more than 25,000 tons of cargo, your goal is to strike at gold every time. Because if you don't, then what's the point in having a ship that's 729 feet long out on the Great Lakes? Think about it then one could come back and say, well, that was a waste of taxpayer money. It was also a waste of Ogilvy Norton's money. Uh, the third captain who took over was a fellow named Peter Pulser. He took over in 1966, the year Joe Larson retired. He often referred to himself as Commodore Pulser since he was the master of Columbia Fleet's flagship, meaning the Edmund Fitzgerald, that flagship vessel being the first, the grandest, the most prestigious of vessels in a um, shipping company's um, uh, uh, fleet, and that being Ogilvy Norton. Captain Pulser was very passionate about the Fitzgerald in general. He ran daily operations very diligently under his command, the Fitzgerald became the first Great Lakes ship to exceed the magic 30,000-ton mark for a single cargo, and did so on four separate instances in 1968. In 1969, under Captain Pulser's leadership, the Fitz hauled 1,349,404 tons of cargo through the Sioux Locks, at the time, it would be the highest volume in the lock's 119-year history. Captain Pulser always demanded the highest professional standards from his subordinates, that is, the men below him. However, he also knew, 
knew how to have fun with, with his crew and also with any tourists who boarded the boat. You know, there's a time to have fun, but there's also a time for serious work. And if there's one thing that uh, captains should not allow to have happen is to get so distracted to the point where the possibility or the potential of neglecting one's ship um, can make or break a captain's reputation, not just short-term but long-term. Too often we hear in the news sometimes about airline pilots getting distracted, and when it happens, their records get tarnished if it means... Um, a plane crashed or if it meant um, uh, the crew not paying attention to what was on the runway before takeoff. I mean, things like this do happen when you get easily distracted. So for Peter Pulser, yes, he wants his men to perform to the highest standards. But yes, does he believe in having fun? Yes, but it's got to be on the right terms. When you're on board a ship like the Fitzgerald, Everybody's got an assignment to fulfill. And in another podcast, I might uh, even talk about some of the other um, positions that uh, some men uh, performed, because not everybody was of high rank, but everybody has a part to play in order for the boat to uh, smooth, uh, smooth, um, what do you call it, to move safe and sound in a safe, navigable manner along Lake Superior. When you consider... Uh, that Lake Superior not only is the largest of the Great Lakes, but as I mentioned last night, uh, the lake never gives up her dead. Well, when you're on Lake Superior, you don't know what to expect, but you also want to do everything there is in in your power to avoid being an example of the lake never giving up her dead. Well, Ernest McSorley is the final captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald, basically the final captain that the Fitzgerald will have. He takes over in 1972. He is an old-school mariner. He maintained a professional distance between himself and his subordinates below him. However, he saw commanding the Edmund Fitzgerald as a crowning achievement in his career. It turns out that that Captain McSorley is a native of Ogdensburg, New York. Now, my wife and I recently went to the Thousand Islands region of New York State at the start of last month, and we were not too far from Ogdensburg. Um, One of our uh, boat rides was in Alexandria Bay, which is in Jefferson County, the county next door is St. Lawrence County, where Ogdensburg is. Ogdensburg is about 35 miles north of Alexandria Bay, and there is a an international bridge in Ogdensburg that connects the United States and Canada, known as the Prescott International Bridge. So, Ernest McSorley is a native of Ogdensburg, and it's located right on the St. Lawrence River, and I must say that is quite an amazing river. Uh, One of the uh, clearest rivers that I have ever seen, and when my wife and I were there, uh, we did see our share of um, Great Lakes freighters, going um, through the uh, St. Lawrence River. Every time I saw one, I almost had to think to myself, gosh, that ship going by almost would have resembled the Edmund Fitzgerald. 
it's a shame that I never got the chance to see the Edmund Fitzgerald um, go by. Um, of course, I would have had to have lived in um, somewhere along the Great Lakes, most notably in Lake Superior or in a city like Toledo or um, or uh, Detroit or uh, let alone um, anywhere any city that would have been surrounded by the Great Lakes. Uh, the Fitzgerald, unfortunately, sank four years before I was born. Uh, but nonetheless, I have seen pictures of the ship, and by seeing pictures of the ship, it does allow not only myself, but it, it could allow anyone else to um, to enable their, themselves to have a, a connection, not a, a deep connection, but a connection in saying, gosh, look at the ship up close on the water. Wouldn't it have been something to have seen it in person? So anyways, uh, Ernest McSorley began his maritime career at age 18 as a deckhand on a saltwater vessel. So we're talking about the early 1930s at at the time the Great Depression is really going into full swing. In 1951, at age 38, he, be, he becomes captain of the Carrollton, a 255-foot freighter. And at this time in 1951, he was the youngest master on the lakes at 38. To me, that seems kind of old, but remember, once again, being a captain is not something that just gets handed to you. You have to earn your way up the ladder to get that rank, and sometimes it may not happen until you're close to 40, but Given that Ernest McSorley was 38 years old in 1951, he's already spent 20 years on the um, Great Lakes. I would say that it's very fair for him to have um, been given that honor of being a captain. And remember this too, folks. If you are going to become a captain on, on a Great Lakes freighter, you're going to have to start at a very early age learning all the ropes. It's not just something that's going to happen in your late 20s. You know, um, you could go to maritime school. I know that that there is a maritime school somewhere in the Great Lakes where a region where men and women can study uh, to become just about anything they want to be on in terms of uh, working on um, ships along the Great Lakes, but most notably uh, captains or admiral, uh, that those sorts of uh, titles. So um, those who, I I should point this out, those who worked with Ernest McSorley saw him as a very private person who did conduct himself in the highest level in the seas. But in the end, he was found to be likable, including uh, having a great sense of humor. There again, as I mentioned with Peter Pulser, who expected um, a great uh, level of um, expectation from his crew, I think it's fair to say Ernest McSorley would have expected the same thing too. Because if you don't expect a whole lot from your crew, how would you expect them to get the job done on a regular basis? You want to set the highest expectations, not just for being on the Edmund Fitzgerald, but for any other uh, Laker or uh, Laker freight ship. You want to have the expectations high. But when it comes to being on the Edmund Fitzgerald, you've got to set the bar even higher. In other words, you don't want to set an example of where common people um, make the same mistakes or common people um, don't have a clear um, focus on where they're going. I think 
for uh, captains of Great Lakes freighters, they have to be uncommon. In other words, they have to uh, do things that are different from from the overall norm standards. They have to be able to um, give their crew instructions that are different from what they've ever encountered before. Because when you're on the Great Lakes, anything is inevitable. You have to be prepared for anything that Mother Nature will come. But it also means doing your job even before the inevitable strikes. I also found interesting about Ernest McSorley, or should I say Captain Ernest McSorley, was that he was 59 years old in 1972, the year he became captain of the Fitzgerald. He was a married man, and those closest to him knew that his wife, Mrs. McSorley, had suffered a stroke and resided in a Toledo nursing home. And there was some speculation that McSorley himself might be retiring. So some were led to believe, that is, those who were closest to him were led to believe that maybe after the um, the ship uh, outing in, in the beginning of November 1975 could have been his last. Did Mr. McSorley have children of his own? No, he didn't, but his wife had a daughter, and I'm assuming this could have been a daughter from another marriage, but... From what I read, um, Ernest McSorley's stepdaughter had often said that her stepdad's life revolved around the ship. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would say it's a good thing. I think it's very fair to say that if Ernest McSorley was a caring person, even though he may have had his own way of showing it, which might have been awkward or strange at times, he treated... um, the men on on the Fitzgerald like family, but he treated the ship with the utmost dignity and respect there is. And throughout his 44-year maritime career, especially when reaching captain status in 1951, Ernest McSorley was well-revered and liked by those who worked below him. McSorley himself always identified with the vessel he commanded. So no matter which vessel he was commanding... He knew how to identify with it, just like what he did in 1951 when he commanded a 255-foot vessel, which obviously is not anywhere near a 729-foot vessel. But the bottom line is, regardless of, a, of the laker, regardless of the freighter's size, he knew how to treat it with the proper respect it deserved, not just for the ship itself, but for its people. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and it's been a very good discussion. The next podcast session hopefully will be tomorrow or uh, the day after being for Thursday. But for the next podcast session, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, how the taconite pellets were loaded onto the Edmund Fitzgerald, not just all the time, but most notably uh, for the night of, uh, or not so much for the night, but for her ship's uh, last voyage. And it is hard to believe that, um, you know, we think 17 years is a short period of time. But in 17 years, the Edmund Fitzgerald accomplished so much. Just knowing how, how many uh, records she set with tonnage, 
how many how many records she set um, with hauling um, cargo. I mean, this ship was just in a league of its own, and I could see why people would have gotten out of their cars just to pull out off the side of the road, just not only just to get out of their car, but to watch the ship go by. There was a reason for it. It wasn't just, oh, look, there's a big freighter. No, you're talking about the granddaddy of them all, the mighty Fitz. Yeah, that, that, that's an icon to people in the Midwest. And it should serve as an icon to those who, um, who have a passion for not just ships, but for this uh, profession as well. I think it's fair to say that all four captains of the Edmund Fitzgerald, whom I discussed, were willing to risk their own lives, not just for the safety of their crew, but for themselves, but for this ship. I think it's fair to say that, uh, lastly, while, yes, the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Titanic had some unique similarities, I think it's fair to say that the Edmund Fitzgerald and all of her different captains and crew did have a lot of camaraderie. They um, worked out whatever, if, they, if there were differences, they, they were worked out constructively. They, while, yes, records were set with the Fitzgerald in terms of hauling cargo, I do believe it is fair to say that the Fitzgerald, for the most part, her pe the people who owned her did not make perhaps the same mistakes that the, the, that the White Star Line had done with Titanic. I think it's fair to say that the White Star Line uh, with Titanic <laughs> placed too much confidence in technology. As for the Edmund Fitzgerald, on one hand you could say that some people maybe did place too much confidence in technology with giving her the impression that she couldn't be sunk. But the Fitzgerald was not, um, while the Fitzgerald was always breaking records, it was for her cargo. It had nothing to do with breaking um, her average or her maximum speed average, which was 16 knots. Titanic was trying to um, break 21 knots and get to New York, her final destination, at a world record uh, pace uh, in terms of a speed rate. Edmund Fitzgerald wasn't into any of that. Well, um, I look forward to the next uh, podcast, and uh, thank you again for listening, and thank you again for all my fellow uh, listeners who enjoy um, these podcasts because they are meant to um, teach uh, all of you uh, relevant information, but it's also meant to tell a good story. And we're not just talking about a one-night story. We're talking about stories, people, that that um, they just didn't happen overnight, but they were stories that happened over time. And when they happen over time, we also appreciate what took place in the past that led up to the present. Yes, that sometimes is good, sometimes it's not good. But regardless, the story has to be told to make it uh, worth the while to share with all of you. Well, that's all for tonight. Uh, take care and uh, stay safe. <laughs>